0: Welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. Unlike last week, I have hoppies this week. And I think I got two, right, Carrie? You're still around, aren't you?
1: Somewhere? I'm still here, Jack.
0: Fantastic. So that's how you know that we have a superstar guest this week is Carrie showed up. Or Brad didn't let her run out of the shop. I don't know, one of the two. Uh, we do have a guest, Chase Gibson, Gibson's Guide Service out of West Virginia. And we're going to talk southern muskies. We're going to talk about... Hot weather, and Chase may or may not be the record holder in West Virginia, the state record holder, Giant Muskie. So um, it'll be a cool conversation that we have with him. We don't do Southern conversations that often, so I'm looking forward to this one. Actually, I'm not looking forward to it. Brad's the one that's going to hold down the fort because I took care of it last week, so Brad can take care of it this week. I'm just going to hang out and record this one.
2: (laughs) I don't know about that, Jeff, but... I appreciate it, man. We've got kind of in a little bit of a jam for this uh, past week's episode, and it just didn't work out for me, unfortunately. Um, Trying to get as much time on the water because I was worried about our own water temps. It's crazy, man. It's, It's holding, but it's a little scary when it's calm out and that sun's beating down on the water. So we really, really need some rain. It's getting to the point where another week or two, if we don't get any rain, I don't know if we're going to get, be able to get our boats in the in the lakes around here so we're already dragging the boat clean across the uh the blowholes at the accesses so a little bit scary way too early for this type of weather
0: i know by me you can have some of the water that we get we get five inches every week it seems like so you can have mine well send it over <laughs> i'll do i'll do a rain dance is that where an anti-rain dance and see if we can't redirect that somewhere
2: yeah, for sure. I feel like I live in Nevada right
0: now. Yeah, I don't. I'm still cutting my grass twice a week in July. That's n- that's no good. I don't like it. And then I got to cut my mom's grass too. So I don't like that either. I don't
1: think we've cut the grass since
0: June 12th or
2: 13th. Yeah. <laughs> so the last rain we got was June 11th.
0: Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, definitely not what's going on over here. Other than that, you know, Brad, how is fishing been?
2: It's been solid. Um, We've had some really good success, and I've been able to put together a bunch of just different kinds of footages, so
0: it's been interesting. Hey, Brad, I got a person that was asking me about how to get in touch with you for booking a trip. If somebody wants to book a trip for you for either late this fall, if you have anything available, or 2022, how do they go about doing that? Pretty
1: simple. Send Brad a text message at 218-535-0231.
2: Or they could message me on Instagram as well.
0: All right. I I gave out an email address and I said Instagram. So I didn't have the text messaging. I wasn't the one that was going to give out that information necessarily. I don't know how readily available that is. So (laughs) I've had a few people wanting to look to book trips with you. I don't know why, but you know, whatever.
2: Yeah, I don't know either. But I, you know, it's been kind of crazy, Jeff. I have such a, a large return clientele base that, Honestly, my date book gets full really, really quick. And so it's, it's kind of tough, but I mean, every once in a while I'll end up having an opening and try to fit somebody in.
1: That's for sure.
0: You got anything else to add to this one? Otherwise I'll just say that if you guys are looking for gear, I say guys, but it's guys and gals. I know there's a lot of ladies that musky fish as well. If you're looking for gear for your next musky fishing adventure, check out team Rhino outdoors to be team rhino com, And we are your source for musky fishing gear. And you can also check out Brad, Carrie, make Carrie do it. Let's see, Carrie, you can do it.
2: You can also check out the products that we sell at Musky Mam Tackle at muskymamtackle.com. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, as well as YouTube.
0: All right, well, I don't have anything else to add this week. I know we don't need to make this intro any longer than it is, although this is a pretty short one. I know, Brad, you want to go fishing maybe you're going to take Carrie with you, otherwise, she's probably going to be stuck in the shop. But I know we all have other things that we need to do this evening, so why don't we d- dive into our conversation with Chase? Let's go after it. All right, our guest today is Chase Gibson with Gibson's Guide Service. Chase, it's the first time we've ever had you on the podcast, so why don't you talk a little bit about your guide service? Talk a little bit about what got you into muskie fishing, just give the listeners an idea of uh, who, who you are.
1: So, I'm down here in uh, West Virginia and I'm guiding on. Stonewall, Jackson Lake. Uh, I have a few other lakes nearby that I can guide on, but Stonewall is usually, usually definitely it's our best musky water, just usually good enough to guide on all the time, but I have that, and I have a couple rivers also I could guide on, but like I said, Stonewall's my home basin, and it's just your, <laughs> our best fishery in the state right now, and uh, I've been guiding since March this year. I've been staying pretty busy, but uh, right now, we got some, we've experienced hot water really fast. So right now, I'm on the off season, waiting on the fall. I kind of got into it probably, I think, nine years ago now, I caught my first one, and I was 11. Back then, we used to fish a river, and we had no idea what we were doing. And of course, we had bass tackle, like most guys started, and we used to fish, and I always hated muskie fishing because it was just, something you went out and did you didn't really ever catch anything and a young kid they don't really like doing that very often and uh finally we got to a good hold. my dad woke me up actually from a nap and said hey you should probably start casting it's a good place and i started casting and i took my first fish ever caught it and i've been hooked since and i was extremely shooken up from catching that fish and i have thought about muskies ever since
2: i think you've uh you've elevated quickly the way it sounds to me
1: yeah, well, I've devoted like all of my high school life and a lot of my friends were going out, and hanging out and partying. I was usually out of the like 95% of the time. <laughs> so I-, I devoted a ton of my life to it. Missed out a lot of stuff, but I don't really regret any of it, to be honest with you. Oh, that's awesome. That's super awesome. What
2: uh, year was it that you kind of got into this whole sport, Chase? Uh, two thousand or yeah, two thousand ten, two thousand eleven. I think it's two thousand eleven actually. Okay. It sounds like your fisheries down there have really kind of taken off as well. I mean when were when were the fish introduced down that way?
1: I'm pretty sure we've always had some native streams and stuff, but in the lakes I honestly I think Stonewall I'm pretty sure they were introduced in Stonewall in like the late eighties, early nineties. Stonewall was dammed up. Well, Stonewall was created in the 70s, I believe. And the earliest muskie that I know of being caught out of there was like early 90s. But I think they were introduced a little bit before that. We don't really have a great stocking program like a lot like Ohio and Pennsylvania. Well, I, I think it is great, but we don't get quite as much numbers as a lot of lakes. So we have a Stonewall's 2,700 acres and we get probably on an average of 250, 350 fish somewhere in there every year. And what it's created is a good thing. It's created more of a trophy fishery than anything. And I'm not saying it's a low density, it's a very high density lake, but it's got some really, really quality fish in it right now. And I mean, it's, it's chock full of fish, but it's unbelievable the amount of 45 plus inch fish in that lake right now.
2: Are they trying to stock, uh, the native fish or are they, um, bringing bringing in different strains from different states?
1: Most of ours are like Ohio strain or Ohio river strain. We have Ohio river strain, Middle Island Creek strain, and that Middle Island Creek is a river that's in West Virginia and it's always had muskies are native to it. So they're kind of trying to keep that strain alive. And then we've also have a couple of Chautauqua's, but we haven't had, we haven't stocked Chautauqua's in probably 10 years.
2: Well, the, the beauty of that those strains that you're talking about, I mean, they produce some pretty big fish, that's for sure.
1: Yeah. Recently, it's not so much, but when I first started fishing stonewall and I would contact mid to upper 40-inch fish, almost all of them seemed to be Chautaucus because the chautauqua just so dark gold and barred up and you can just tell right away. But anymore, we're getting a lot more of the, they're either the Middle Island or the Ohio strains that are growing to the 50 inch mark. So the Chautauquas are kind of dying off and those ones are taking charge and they're just unbelievably getting big fast. Another thing to note on it, Stonewall nine years ago, they introduced shad. So It it didn't used to have shad in it. It always had a ton of crappie and bluegill, but now it's got an enormous population of shad and that's that's really why they're really taking off now
2: waters down there had shad though didn't they i mean that isn't that generally your your true
1: forage uh not really here like kentucky a a ton of lakes and stuff i've been on down there have shad but or west virginia not so much like uh the burnsville where the state record came from there's not a huge population of shad in there even if there is shad in there i've heard they're in there but i've honestly never seen them but if they're in there, there's not very many. It's nothing like Stonewall. But there's a couple mm-hmm. other lakes in the state that really don't have a population of muskie that do have shad, but Stonewall's really the only one that's got tons of shad and tons of muskies. Makes sense. Makes sense.
2: I, I just always I guess when I assu- I make the assumption, you know, when you go down south that most of those bodies of water
1: have shad. So that's yeah, uh, well, so, more more the deal, you know? Yeah. Well, most, most of the southern reservoirs I've been on and heard about, they're all Shad based, which we are now, but we used to not be.
2: Jeff, have been down the, uh, were you in Virginia or West Virginia? Weren't you down there fishing at one point? No,
0: Pennsylvania and Ohio. Oh, okay. I was thinking you'd made it down that way. No, I want to. Definitely on my list.
2: Chase, what's the fishing pressure like down there?
1: Uh, it's definitely exploded in the past couple of years. Last year was really bad because of COVID. Everyone was off work and was fishing all the time, but This year, I haven't seen as many musky boats, but it's still a lot, but it's probably nothing like, I'm not sure what you guys experienced, but I would say a heavy musky fish weekend where there's a lot of musky fishermen, I would say probably 30, 30 musky boats on the entire lake, which is only a 2,700 acre lake, but that's generally about the max, I would say.
2: Yeah, that's that's quite a few boats though for that size water. I mean it, it's definitely fishable, but man, you you're kind of working the same spots over and over I'm assuming.
1: Well what's good about Stonewall, it's twenty seven hundred acres, but it's a very narrow lake. It's basically a river and it's got a couple big creek arms and a lot of little little coves with standing and they're all full of standing timber. So there's a lot and a lot of water that you can fish. So you can get away from people and not see anyone all day, really, in a couple areas. So it's, a, it's only 2,700 acres, but it's still a very big lake, if that makes any sense. It's just very narrow and has a lot of shoreline. Yeah, that, that makes
2: perfect sense. You, you mentioned wood. What other types of structure are you actually
1: working down there? So specifically on Stonewall, 95% of the time, if I'm actually fishing structure other than the bottom, it's going to be standing timber, or down trees, and as far as weeds go we don't we on a very good year we'll get some weeds in the spring this year there's only really one area that had good weeds that held fish but in the fall a lot of our flats will have weeds on them but it's nothing like crazy like it's maybe two or three foot tall weeds, which honestly is really good weeds because they can't really get too deep into them that you can't get them out they're you're always able to put baits near them if they're in them so in the in the fall, I fish a lot of weed and timber, also. I mean, there's always going to be fish in the timber, but weed definitely comes into play in the fall. yeah, it's
2: it's pretty amazing. I mean, I know I've spent some time on the cave. It sounds pretty similar all in all from what we're what we're talking about here. Would you agree with that, or or what are the differences
1: between the cave in Kentucky versus your water? Cave Run is a lot deeper. for one thing about cave run, it's a lot deeper their standing timber isn't nearly as thick as our timber. It, it has it in the lake, but in a lot of the areas that I've been on cave run and caught them out of the timber, the timber's not even close to as thick as it's Stonewall. And they do have way more weeds at, at cave run. There's like a lot more weeds. We have weeds, but it's nothing close to like cave run, like maybe four or five flats on the entire lake. We don't have great big flats like, like cave run it has like Zippo. It's nothing like that. Like our flats are just, just say a shallow point that runs out, maybe there's a flat cove on the left-hand side, and it's just 100 yards long and 50 yards wide, and there'll be a patch of weeds on it. We have a couple of little areas like that that have weeds and generally hold fish. Do you deal with the flooding like Cave Run does or no? No. I'm, I'm very. We're very fortunate that Stonewall, it's got two creeks run into it, and the creeks are probably 20 feet wide, maybe. And there's hardly any flow into them, so we rarely get any high water. The only time I've ever seen that lake high was after some extreme rains in, like, February. And the lake got high, like, maybe two feet was the most I've ever seen it. And and when it does that, they they never let it out. Like, cave it, it, like K- run, I've heard of it dropping, like, a foot a day or more than that. We don't ever do that. It drops maybe an inch a day at the most.
2: Well, I definitely want to come down there and share the boat with you, Chase. I know we've talked about it some already, but, you know, you've been catching a ton of fish and good quality fish, and it's pretty impressive. The other thing that's uh, kind of been taking place down there that I really want you to talk about is the mortality study that you're working with. Uh, is it Fish and Wildlife, or is it uh, the DNR down there?
1: It's the DNR. Okay. It's, actually, it's, it's a combination of the DNR and then uh, West Virginia University, so the college. There's a professor at the college that's kind of running it, but it's obviously through the DNR also, but they're, uh, they're doing a hot water delayed mortality study. And what that is, is they're, they went out in the spring and I actually went out with them and, uh, we went out, we shocked fish, we got them up in the boat and they, what they do is they put them in like a cradle and they cut maybe a one half, two inch incision, uh, below the, uh, the bottom fin. And then they have a, a tracker that goes in them, and it's got about a 20-inch antenna that hangs out. The antenna sticks out of the fish, and then the actual uh, ball, I guess would be the word for it, is in the fish. And then they stitch them up, put a tag in them, put a tit tag in them, and then release them. And what they're doing is they're trying to figure out if they're if being caught in 80-plus degree water is if you release them, even though they swim off completely fine and you never going to the bottom and dying, or if they're going down and coming up later and dying. That's what they're trying to figure out.
2: And how long has the study been going, and how long I think you said it ends this fall?
1: Yeah, so last year was the first year they started it. And we had all of last year, we had 45 muskies tagged. And then this year, and those, those trackers went dead in the 45 muskies from last year, so we had to get new fish this year. So we got I think like 46 or 47 more this year and did the same thing. And it will go on go till water falls from 80 degrees.
2: Where are you sitting right now for water temps?
1: Mm, I was on the lake today, bass fishing and the surface was 86, I believe, and probably a foot and a half, two foot down was like 83. Okay. So, I mean, you're
2: in that danger stages. What have they told you about oxygen levels? I mean, when the water temp is that warm, where is the best oxygen level in that system?
1: It's different all over the lake. Most of the lake, and, and this year, our thermocline, has, uh, right now it's probably developed, but we haven't tracked since. I haven't been out with them since last Friday, I believe. But as of last Friday, it was starting to develop pretty good. But about 15 foot is what last year was. About 15 and a half foot was... The thermocline. Everything below that, I don't know the exact percentages or whatever, but it didn't have good oxygen for muskies. So every muskie in the lake almost was like either 12 to 15 foot deep, right above, as close as they could get to that hot or that unoxygenated water because that's where the coolest water was because it's obviously deeper. So most of them did that, but there was some fish in a couple other areas where the thermocline for some reason was shallower and they couldn't get any deeper than just say like eight feet and there's a couple areas like that on the lake but most of them are all down deep and generally i believe last year when we got into the dog days of summer like 15 foot down was still like 74 degrees i think yeah 74 degree water temps
2: you're actually out there and you're actually trying to catch these fish what takes place with those fish chase i mean uh, say you catch one in 15 feet or less Versus one that's out, you know, just cruising in the open basin or whatever. Can you give me any descriptions on what you guys are seeing in that study? So last year,
1: like I said, there were 45 tags. Last year, during the hot water period, which was from like, I think the mid mid June to late September, there was only six, or no, there's only 10 muskies caught during that period that had trackers in them. We had, one for sure died. another one that was a possible death but we i'm not sure if he's confirmed it yet so Those 10 of them were caught six of them were in my boat so I, I know exactly what those fish went through that that were in my boat i got to watch it from cat from catch to release and most of them uh last year i handled most of them and being experienced and pulling and have pulled with lots of muskies and never wanting to see them die I was extremely fast with them faster than I normally would be with them and did everything very fast released it got it back in the water as fast as I could and they definitely you can definitely tell it was really hard on them but like I said we only had two two one definite mortality and one possible so this year the boy that goes out tracking with me he's not He's caught a couple of muskies, but not very many. So I'm letting him handle everything. As soon as they get in the net, he's unhooking them, picking them up for a picture, putting them on the bump board and releasing them. And we're actually trying to keep a timer on that. So as soon as they hit the net, one of us hits a stopwatch button and we're measuring how long, or we're timing, how long it was in the net, how long we picked it up out of the water, and then we put it back in the water, start another lap, And then we tell how long it took for it to actually go out of sight. This year, we're getting, we're doing a little bit better, I would say. We're getting a little bit more detailed information as far as holding out of the water. And we're trying to get the fight time, but I'm sure you probably can understand how hard that is. But so far, I've caught six or seven, I think seven muskies this year in the study. None of mine have died yet, but there's four that I've caught recently. That we haven't got to confirm yet, but there was one fish caught by a crappy fisherman. He caught it on light, like an ultralight rod or something. So you can imagine how long that took. And that fish actually died. And another thing I would like to note is the ones we went out one day and we caught four, four of the study fish. During that time, there was no thermocline yet. The water was 80, but there was still plenty of oxygen throughout the entire water column. So really, Even though the water's 80, it's really not that hard on them, if that makes sense. Right now, the past four I've caught, and from now on through the summer, is when they're really probably going to die, if they're going to die.
2: I'm curious, how are you confirming that the fish actually died? I mean, obviously, you have that monitor. How are you trying to, are you following them for a bit after you catch them? Or coming back on, like, two days later? Or, I mean, what what is the delayed mortality
1: rate? You know what I mean? What day is it? Do they know? I don't think he has a a number for that. No, but he, what happens, we release them and then we move on to the next one and try to get another one. And then he has to go out, I think once or twice a week, every week. And he has to go out and track every fish's location and see where they're at. And if they end up being in the same spot for a couple months, we're not going to know the results for a a while because he's going to go out and track. And if they just never move then he's going to count it as dead because it's on the bottom, the trackers rotted out of it or whatever. and It's on the bottom of the lake. But a couple of them that we already know are dead is because we found them floating dead and they had the trackers in them.
2: Makes sense. I know it's science, but if you think about it, the study, it's not an easy study. And even if the study comes out and it might prove uh, different than it really is actually. I know that we talked about that a little bit, Chase, that you know, there's no 100% guarantee in what they're doing in this system.
1: No. There's, and I, I've talked to it about, Peter's the guy that tracks them. I've talked to Peter, almost every time we go out, I have this conversation, because honestly, I don't want to see it come out and say that it's, that these fish are going to live, because I know for a fact it's hard on them. No, I don't think all of them die, but I can tell you right now, it's a heck of a lot different catching them in the 80-degree water than it is in sixty five. The, the stress it puts on them, you can just tell the fish are just exhausted. It's, it's very stressful on them, and there are just so many factors that you could never, you could never have a study that's going to cover all the factors, obviously, as far as getting hooked deep on what kind of rod, how long they fought it, I mean all that
2: kind of stuff. If you just do simple math, say there's 10 anglers on the lake today, and one of, they all catch a fish and one of them die. And you do that tomorrow. Now now you've lost two fish in two days. You know what I mean? If you go by the 10% rule, it really puts a, a hurt on
1: the fishery in a quick way. I agree. Oh, the other thing I was wanting to mention is that Stonewall last year, of all the hot water stuff I've always heard, is when the water gets 80, the dissolved oxygen at the surface of the lake is bad. Meaning there's not much oxygen in the surface. For whatever reason, and Stonewall may be a hidden gem that it's it's different, or maybe we just had a really weird year last year. But the surface last year pretty much kept a hundred percent oxygen all summer long, for whatever reason. And the only place that there wasn't that much oxygen is below that thermocline, which all the fish are above it, anyways. So really, and I I would like to know if other lakes like K Run or Kincaid or your guys' lakes, if they're different, if they have 100% oxygen at the surface also. And I don't know, like I said, I don't know if it was just a crazy year. We haven't really gotten the hotness yet uh, to figure out if it's still going to be the same pattern as last year. But last year we had great oxygen all the way up to like the mid-August when it was absolutely horrible outside. And then it got down a little bit, but not bad. I just thought that was very weird, and I I hope, and if it is that Stonewall's crazy good lake, that it always has good oxygen, I hope that the the study doesn't come out and people see it from up your way or all over the country and they see it, and they're like, well, they're all good, and then they go out to their lake, and their lake's completely different and they're killing fish left and right. Yeah, that's the scariest part about that
2: whole study, in my opinion. We all know that low oxygen and a stressed fish is not a good scenario, so the bottom line truly is, is that we, we just have to be cautious and pay attention to all of this.
1: Yeah. I truly believe even if the study does come out and it says that there are living, that there are only just like you said, 10% die. Okay. Well, if 10% die, I think 90% of the musky dudes that never fished hot water and was totally against it. I don't think they're going to go out there and fish in it anyways, because they know what they know. What I think is there's so many new musky guys, I don't know about your way, but our way we're getting tons and tons of guys that I want to start musky fishing. Well, they don't know any better. They're going to hear, well, they live in the summer. Let's go fish in the summer. That's all they know better. But like me, and I can think of a couple guys around me that never fished hot water till last year for this study, they're still not going to fish hot water unless uh, really no reason. They're, they're just not going to fish hot water. Just because we know better, let me put it that way. And if it came out and said that they all are dying, I think the guys that have always fished hot wire, I think they're still gonna do it just because they've done it that way for years and they don't think they're dying. I don't think you're ever gonna change people's thoughts.
2: Yeah, it's a tough one. I, I think it's all about education, right? And you're right. As a new angler, I mean a lot of them don't even understand that. And so it's our responsibility, I guess, to to share and, and communicate what this all really means. I don't know, man. Did the biologists, have they said anything about what's creating that oxygen level to come back? I mean, is it all just based off of water temps? What's oxygenating the water, I guess, is my question. Um, does rain help? Does wind help? What, what's the true answers there, and if they've ever shared any of that?
1: Uh, we really haven't talked about it a ton. I, I believe, like, a really, really hard rain will help it, but it's hardly anything at all. It's nothing like, like I always thought if you're out there and it, it comes pouring the rain down, the the water's going to be super oxygenated. It's not that case at all. We have measured that. That's, it doesn't help it hardly as, hardly at all, really. We don't really know why Stonewall was, had great oxygen levels all last year. We have no idea why. Be, and it makes no sense because the lake has like zero current, zero current, zero weed. So why would it have oxygen? I have no idea. Uh, we We're still stumbled on that, but. I'm curious to see if this year is the same way.
2: That's that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I didn't even think about that, the weed side of things. I mean, weeds are pumping just like our trees or whatever, you know, creating that oxygen level. So that's, yeah. that's a good key point. Um, and it isn't like you said that the two creeks that come in really aren't pushing a lot of water either. So that's interesting.
1: Yeah. Hardly at all,
2: really. I'm assuming the college is funding all of this or is the state
1: funding some of it too? Uh, the, and another thing I didn't mention the, I I believe the state, I think the, the university's funding actually like buying the trackers and all that and, and paying Peter to go out and track. But I, right now last year, so when you catch one of these hot water fish during this time period, you get $50. The, they send you a check in the mail for $50 for every one of them you catch. It's a reward. So last year when I got them, they were from the university, the, the check were. Well, this year I got my checks, and they're from my Chapter 9, Mustys Inc. So I don't know what happened there if the university just decided they didn't want to pay it anymore or, or what happened or if we just volunteered to pay it. But I plan on, depending on how much, I, if I get enough, I'll probably just, don't, I'm, I actually talked to the biologist today, our, our biologist for our district, I talked to him today about it. I'm probably just going to donate the money that I get from this study back into the stocking. That's
2: what it's about, too. You know, I, it's so funny. Everybody always talks about how much money it costs for stocking and whatever. But I think all muskie anglers would jump at the opportunity to have more stocking. The money would be there. One hundred percent. And I don't think that differs in any state. I mean we're all a bunch of crazy lunatics that love throwing big baits at uh at Muskies, so the more the merrier, right?
1: Yep. And we're already used to spending our arm and leg in baits and boats and all that. So a little bit of money here and there to donate to actually using that stuff in the future would not hurt. Absolutely.
2: Let's just move right into you catching the state record fish. It's pretty wild. It sounds like you maybe even called it like before the season, before you really got rolling, that you were gonna get this done, and bang, it actually happened. So, let's uh, let's
1: listen to how that all kind of took place, Chase. So I, I knew our state record prior to this year was a fifty-three and a half inch fish, and the amount of fish that I'm seeing in Stonewall that is fifty inches plus is out of this world. So I I, I have call, I didn't call it that I was going to catch it, but I did call it that the state record is going to be broke very soon. And I, I, it's just too easy to see that many fish and not believe that there's one bigger than a 53 and a half in the, our entire state. And they're going to, it's going to get caught if it's in there. So where I caught it is actually a lake 20 minutes south of Stonewall. And I was guiding on Stonewall pretty regularly at this point. And I had a day off and a friend of mine from Pennsylvania, Frank Krupsky, texted me and asked me if I want to go fishing. And I said, yeah, sure. And uh, I talked him into going to Burnsville because I am i don't know a ton about Burnsville. I know enough to fish it, but I don't fish it very often because I usually have to drive past Stonewall to go to Burnsville. And that's very hard for me to do. <laughs> so, But I knew there was giant fish in there. It's a very low-density lake, but the ones that are in there are huge, obviously. But we got fishing that morning, and I just pulled into a cove and started casting some standing timber with a I was throwing a like a shum shum I think. And uh water temps were like sixty two, sixty three. So they and at Stonewall at least they were just getting ready to like most fish were coming off the spawn and were starting to get on the timber. So I just used that knowledge to towards Burnsville. I started throwing the shum and noticed on uh my down imaging and paint optics that most of the bait was out near the creek channel and like about 12 foot down we were in about 22 23 foot of water and most of the bait was 8 to 12 foot down so I switched over to a dying dog and just started chucking it right along that creek channel as much as I could in that timber and I was just pulling it along and rod loaded up I set the hook fish came to the surface and I knew it was over 50 but I had no idea it was anywhere near that that size And, uh, she ran straight to the boat, almost wrapped around a tree. It was super hectic. And Frank was ready with the net on the other side. When she got to the other side of the boat and we scooped right up and it was, it was perfect. I went to unhook her and she had one hook in the corner of her jaw. The back hook was just barely in the corner of her. I got the pliers and barely put any pressure on it and it popped right out. As soon as we got in the net, I'm just looking at it and I I knew it was 50, but I, Obviously, not going to call that it's like a 55 inch fish because I've never seen anything even close to that big. And Frank immediately said, Dude, that's a 55. And I said, You've never seen a 55. There's no way it's a 55. <laughs> and so we get everything ready, get the bump board set up, and he's holding the camera. And I pick her up, I put her on the bump, and I uh, fork the tail, and i seen 54. And then with a forked tail and an open jaw, she was 54 and three quarter. And at this point, it's still not registering in my head. And we get the pictures and I put her back in the net. And I told Frank, I was like, that's a new state record. And I was like, we got to call someone. And what's fortunate about us, I don't know how your guys work, but we have a length and a weight record. Our length, our weight record's like 49 pounds or our length record was 53 and a half. And I knew I'd seen it hit 54 when I put in her net, like I said, it still didn't register. I said, I'm going to call them and see if they'll come out. And then I was kind of debating on not, I didn't want the fish to die or anything, even though it was only 62 degrees. I just knew it might've taken a long time. And I was just sitting there telling Frank, I was like, Frank, I i don't know if it's worth chancing it, it's only a quarter inch past it. He said, what's your state record? And I said, 53 and a half. He said, Chase, it's almost an entire inch above it. And then it registered. Well, I called the DNR, one of the biologists, the assistant biologists, Aaron Yeager, and I told him what I had. And he said, well, I I can't promise you how long it's going to take, but I'll try to get there as soon as I can. I explained to him where I was and they brought a boat out with certified scales, a certified measuring board. We went to the bank and I never picked her up out of the net this entire time. Once she hit, once she got done with the pictures and put her in the net, she never came out of the water until the DNR got there. We get over, we measure, and weigh her. She was point, or, yeah, 39.6 yeah, pounds and 54 inches, and that's with a closed jaw. Uh, to be a fish, it had to be closed, which, of course, I'm not complaining about. And we put her back in the water, and it took her maybe, maybe five minutes, and she took right off and, and took off great. And we actually put a pit tag in her. That way, if she was ever found floating or dead again, they can scan her with a pet tag and confirm that it was her. But as of now, we've never found her. So she swam off fine and apparently did great. That's so awesome, man. Congrats.
2: That's that's a huge accomplishment. Something you should be really proud of.
1: Yeah, thank you. I will go ahead and take the time, though, to call another shot. The state record, the length state record that I broke this year, will 100% be broken out of Stonewall within five years. It may not even take that long. Maybe three three to five years, no doubt in my mind, it would be broken out of Stonewall.
2: Well, I'm just curious. I mean, you say that. Obviously, you called it on the last one. Y- you know, you caught it in Burnsville, but now you are you love Stonewall. What What's the two biggest differences between those bodies of water that makes you so positive that
1: Stonewall's the, the answer? Burnsville, like I said, is a very low-density lake. It has big fish in it right now, but they're very old. Like that fish I caught was extremely old, which I'm waiting on a an age from her. But anyways, there's very low density, hardly very few fish in that lake. But when you do catch one, it's a very fat and very big fish. Stonewall is, like I said, completely full of shad. It's completely full of muskies. And the amount of 45 to 50 inch fish I've seen last year and have seen this year is just incredible. And last year I voted four fifties, and they were all like right at 50 or 50 and a half was the biggest one or 50 and three quarters. This year, there's been four fifties put in my boat this year, a 51, a 52, a 52 and a half, or maybe a 50, 52 and a quarter and a 50 and a half. And I have a, a friend of mine from Kentucky, Joey White. He came up and he also voted a 50 this year. And there's been multiple other 50 inches caught this year. So they're, last year they were right at 50. This year they're at 51, 52s. So next year I'm hoping 53s, 54s. And the year after that I'm hoping 55, 56. They're just way too healthy to just stop growing, in my opinion. They're doing great. And we don't have anyone, we don't have to worry about people keeping them out of stonewall. Stonewall is very special and they've made it to where it's a trophy. lake. the minimum size you're allowed to keep a muskie out of stonewall is 52 inches. That definitely helps with us growing 50 inch plus fish. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is a huge key
2: to, uh, to keeping those fish growing and growing. I mean, for the most part, you know, all muskie anglers are going to put them back anyway, but those random ones that get caught by somebody, like you were talking about the crappie fishermen that, uh, just got that big fish, and you—you you just never know. It's always a good feeling to know that uh, the whole fishery is being protected.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd imagine they have an ex—they have a longer growing season as well, just because of the the temperatures that you guys have there. As, as I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sure they do. Like one very interesting thing, and they actually—they gave me a PIT tag reader last year, so all fish, really forty and under. About not every single one of them, but 80 to 90% of them have pit tags in them. So when I catch one, I scan them with a pit tag and it gives me like a 13 digit number. And I've got like 90 some since last May. And a client of mine this year, he caught a 48 and a half inch fish. And generally I don't scan the big ones because they never have them because they're not supposed to have them. Well, for some, whatever reason, I scanned this fish. I scanned it. It had a number. Well, I messaged the DNR. I sent it to them. I said, Hey, can you give me an age on this? They gave me an age on that fish. That 48 and a half inch muskie was only eight years old. And normally when I get like a 40, a 40 to a 43 that has a pit tag, they're usually eight years old. This fish was either just a freaking nature or something, but it was, it was either a freaking nature or it had eaten the muskie that's, pit tag was supposed to be in is my only other option <laughs> to me that just that blew my mind and that that's why i'm saying that it's 100 state records coming out of stonewall eventually because they're just growing so fast and there's just so many giant fish in that lake right now
0: yeah that is pretty incredible eight-year-old fish being 42 43 inches already well the the eight-year-old was a 48 and a half okay uh, but, but you said typically they are about 42 43 yeah. right
1: agreed yeah, yeah. typically are only forty to like
0: forty two. I mean, those growth rates are like Green Bay growth rates. That's how fast they they grow up there.
1: Yeah. What other forage do they have? I know you said there's panfish and there's the shad, but is there any type of suckers or anything like that? Cisco's no cisco's no cisco's no cisco's. What what they have to eat is, of course, billions of shad. There is tons of of crappie in the lake, but they're all which is perfect they're all like three to like six inches is the majority of them and there is millions of them and of course there's millions of bluegills and they're all that three to six inch range and then of course you have the shad and there's very very few walleye in there like hardly any tons of little channel cats i'm sure they eat those all the time too but but their main forage is going to be bluegill crappie and shad
0: I'm kind of curious, do you have any idea why some of these Southern Reservoirs, it sounds like, you know, like the Ohio guys, seems like they struggle to get a 34-inch fish, but then, you know, you guys are, it seems like in Stonewall especially, you're not having a very difficult time finding 40-inch fish. Like, why would there be so much difference, I guess, between the two fisheries? Do you have any idea? Meaning as in why, why is our fish generally, we, have, we get much bigger fish, is that what you mean? Yeah, it seems like the Ohio guys, they hear about it all the time. They're like, oh, we don't have that many quality fish. You know, you guys aren't that far from Ohio and it sounds like you're, you have no problems finding quality fish by you. Okay.
1: So last, last week or the week before I was in Ohio and I was fishing on West Branch Reservoir and we went up there and it was my first time ever being in Ohio. And it's the exact same acreage lake as Stonewall. It's like 50 acres smaller or bigger. I can't remember exactly, but it's basically the exact same size and we caught, A load of fish up there and almost every single one of them was 37 to 43 we caught three fish that were bigger than 43 and it was a 45 a 47 and a 47 and a half but most of them were 43 to 37 and most of the guys i talked on the lake two on the lake had said that most of the fish are exactly that range and it's been like that forever so i fished a Ohio Husky-Musky tournament while I was up there because I was up there and I just decided to enter it. Well, I ended up winning it with eight fish and got big fish. And I was talking to the director of the tournament about their stocking. And he said they stock one musky per acre minimum on that lake. So they're getting 2,700 muskies a year at least. And five years ago, for two years in a row, I believe is what he said, they double stocked it. So they're stocking 2,700 fish a year, generally, Most on most years. Every year, they get at least that many. Like I said, Stonewall, in one year, on a good year, we get more than 300. So generally, in the past 10 years, it's 150 to 450 is the most we've ever got is 450. So I think they overstocked their lakes. And most Ohio lakes that I've talked to guys, there's a couple that they get 50 inches out of there. But it's, it's nothing compared to the numbers of, of 50 inch class fish we got with Stonewall. They have a lot more fish, but they're not 45 plus is a lot more rare. Stonewall, we have a lot of fish and we have a lot of 45 to 50 inches And it, it's crazy to think about that they're stocking 2,700 and we're only stocking 200. And I mean, I've seen a big difference in the amount of fish on the lake, but it really wasn't that crazy. Like, it's unbelievably. To me, that Stonewall has that many fish in it by that low of a number of stocking compared to how high their number of stocking is. It, it really wasn't that big of a difference to me. And there was definitely more, but it wasn't a, a giant difference. And I would say a lot of that has to do with Stonewall, like I said, is protected with a 52-inch minimum. They're never getting kept out of there. Yeah, bass guy will kill them here and there because they complain about the bass. But they're not really getting sought after to eat ever. So they basically live their whole lives, live till they're old enough to die, other than getting accidentally c- caught in the summer or a bass fisherman killing them or something like that. So that. That's what I think it is. I mean, I'm sure you fish farm ponds, and you go to a farm pond, and you catch, you'll have one pond, you'll catch three or four or five pounders and maybe a couple small fish, and then you go to the other pond. Every bass you catch is a 12 incher. It's the same thing. There's just too many bass in it. And then the other one just has a lot smaller population but it has a lot more potential to grow bigger fish
0: that's crazy the difference in stocking and you say that you don't see that much of a difference in the fishing it's unbelievable actually like i mean the mortality rate on these stocked fish in stonewall must be very i mean must be very low so the survival rate has to yep. obviously be very high yeah and like like i've had
1: 10 the the most i've ever caught in one day at stonewall seventeen. We I've had a seventeen fish day and a sixteen fish day out on Central. And I've had multiple double digit ten to twelve fish days. A four to five fish day is not uncommon at all. It's not like I don't wanna make it sound like there's not many fish in there, there's just big ones. No, there's plenty of little there's plenty of fish in there that's thirty five to forty inches. And then but we just have a very a much larger forty five to fifty inch class fish than most places because I would say honestly most of it is probably because of the size limits because those fish are never getting killed. So obviously you're gonna have natural causes dying and the bigger they get the lot smaller a percentage of their lifespan to get that big. But Stonewall you're eliminating a ton of stuff by having the fifty two inch minimum. So you're eliminating a huge part of their mortality by that. So I just believe that there's way more 45 to 50 inch fish in Stonewall than there is in honestly any lake in the Southern range of muskies.
0: All right, Chase, you know, one thing I could tell by this conversation is, I mean, you're still a young kid. I'll call you a kid because I'm probably twice your age, but <laughs> you've come a long way in a very short period of time. You want to kind of talk about that? Like, how did you, how did you make up that much ground so quickly? I mean, is it just. Sim- simply time on the water or did you have a bunch of influential people you know help you along the way We want to talk a little bit about your journey that way
1: i would say most of it is time on the water most of it is time on the water and then i had a very select few people that i would take advice from and would try to use on stonewall this person in specific is joey white from kentucky i became friends i went down with him when i was very young and he guided me on Stonewall and I've just always have been friends with him since, because ever since that day, I just thought he was the man and would text him and ask him all every question I've ever had musky fishing that went straight to Joey and he would answer and he's helped me a ton with everything. Now there's a lot of stuff that he's told me to do that they do on cave run and I've tried at stonewall and it just simply does not happen for whatever reason. I have no idea, but he's definitely been the most influential, but I've definitely had a lot of peers. But as far as figuring out Stonewall, figuring out where the fish are, where they move, where's the best time of year to be to catch a big fish, it's been 90% of me putting the time on the water. I'm I'm out there from literally as soon as the ice defaults, I'm out there till it, till it freezes back up in the winter. Uh, I've broke ice in my boat many of days. I've been out there in thunderstorms all the time. And if I'm not there musky fishing, if in the summertime I'm still on the lake because I go bass fishing. And I've learned a lot from bass fishing out there for muskies by seeing them or marking where the bait's at, stuff like that. Just time on the water. And I've just, I don't know, it's just always been a dream of mine to absolutely, one, be a guide and two, make a living at doing what I'm wanting to do in my life, and that's fishing. So I knew if I had the drive to do it, had the confidence to, sit there and figure something out it would work out and it's i've just that's been a priority in my life is messy fishing and it's always going to be that way so just a lot of time on the water and, and really good people to bounce questions
0: off of you know one other question brad likes to talk about all the time is electronics like how important is that to your success on the water
1: it's very good now while we do a lot of jigging and certain times of the year this year i really didn't get on a very good jigging bite. But generally, jigging's very good. And used to, I would just jig with regular down imaging and, and regular sonar and would be jigging the trees. And you would see them come up on your down imaging or your regular sonar and then you'd see them go away. Well, I recently got, I got panoptics last year. And for jigging, it's, it's just great because you can sit there, you can, when you see that fish rise up, you really don't know what he's doing on side and gene looking at it, but you don't know what that fish is doing, if he's fired up or not. So now I have pan optics and I'm jigging. I can see if that fish likes it when I do a hard rip or if I'm doing slow rips or if he wants it dead sticking, anything. I can tell if he wants it up higher in the water column. It's amazing how different each fish is on certain times of day. And, and it's not like you just buy pan optics and you automatically can go out there and catch fish jigging. It, it took me an extremely long time for one, to see what I'm looking at, and two, read the fish. Just like I'm sure you guys have found on figure eight. You're figure eighting a fish with a bucktail. He comes in, and you're burning as fast as you can, but he acts like he can't quite catch up to it, so you hang in the corner, and he eats it. That's the same thing. You read that fish, you read his his attitude, and you thought, well, he's going to eat it if I hang it. You hang it, and he eats it. It's the same way of jigging on paint optics. I'm jigging. If he gets fired up on something, I keep doing it, and he eats it. So that definitely has helped, but it really hasn't helped me as far as finding fish or anything like that because I'm still catching them in the exact same places I caught them before I had paint optics. But now I can actually interact with fish. So I probably have a better, I would say I have a higher percentage of getting that fish that's coming up on my sonar, on my down imaging, to eat with paint optics now because I can actually interact with fish. Are you
2: using live scope or are you using old school pan optics?
1: I just have one solo Garmin pan optics live scope. In, it sounds
2: like you're probably using it um, in the down imaging.
1: That I use down imaging and forward. But down imaging when I when I have two people jigging, I use the down mode a lot. And honestly, when I'm jigging by myself, I still use down imaging a lot too. But if I'm in real thick, if I'm moving a lot, real fast, like if it's windy or something, I will put it on forward mode. The only problem with forward mode is you're 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 looking out, and so you're only seeing your jig right under you. So they could come from behind the boat or sideways, and you'd never see them. But if you had them on down image or the down, you would see them come from behind you or sideways. If you understand what I'm saying, like it's more directed under your boat rather than out in front of you. And When you're jigging, you want to be looking under you. So the down is definitely the best setting for jigging. That's so why I use mostly yes
2: yeah you know i mean this whole live scope thing is really really exploding uh how much are you using it to just locate fish chase are are you putting it forward view and cruising around trying to locate fish before you start jigging
1: uh not very often i do some but generally like i said i'm still fishing the same places i used to fish and there's there's tons of standing timber in the lake but most of it there's little there's like a certain tree that's always good or there's just a certain line of trees that's always good there's always fish on it so when i'm guiding or whatever i'll just put it on down and have my clients start jigging and i'll take them right to where i know there's always fish and usually they get bit what i have done with it as far as looking is trolling when i'm trolling i'll put it in forward mood, mode and a lot of people point it back to look at their the bait but what i like to do with it And this is really only for like suspended fish. I'll put it in forward mode and just have it out there, just say 40 or 50 feet in front of me. And I'll be watching on forward mode in front of the boat. And that way, when I see a fish and after you look at it so long, you can kind of pick up, like if you're just barely picking up, you can tell if it's to the left or to the right. So if if I'm picking up that fish, I'll try to drive directly over top of it. Or if I've had days where I'm out there trolling and I see this, The boat, they're kind of being spooky to the boat a little bit. So I'll try to get my planer board rod to swing over and hit that fish if I'm lucky enough to do that. Now, I don't do this very often because it's pretty hard to do because your angle is only 15 degrees. But when I do see a fish on it, I'll try to swing the boat over to where I can hit my baits right along that fish. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It is very helpful with trolling, though, as in seeing where the bait's at. Um, one thing I've definitely noticed with it is when I have, cause it's on the front of my boat on down imaging. If you just say you drive over a ball of shad on your down imaging on paint optics, it'll be just say a line at 10 feet whereas where all the shad is. They're all at right at 10 to 12 foot. But when you run over those shad, shad are much smaller and they get scared a lot easier. They dive. As soon as your boat goes, goes over top of them, they dive. So on down, if you didn't have paint optics on down imaging, it looks like they're like, 12 to 15 so i've I've noticed that for sure so in reality instead of being 12 to 15 they're really right at 10 so if you just had down imaging, you would be running your baits probably below the muskies and then with paint optics i would still be running them right at 10 foot i would know that's where the bait's at and i always try to run my baits right in the bait or right above it that's definitely helped me with trolling because i'd never knew that and i've never heard anyone talk about that but that's definitely something i've found yeah, that's interesting. Do you, uh, do you ever run it in perspective mode? I have not. But like I said, Stonewall really doesn't have that many flats. I plan on, on playing around with it a little bit next spring. Uh, this year, where I was guiding I, so many days there in pre-spawn. I didn't want to play around with it while I was guiding. I just did what I usually do. But I plan to to, down, or to play with it and see if it's any good. From what I've seen, I think it would be good, but I I still think it would be hard to really see a lot. It's not really the same image. The little bit
2: that I've been around it, you know, especially in deeper water chase, I think that's where perspective mode gets a little bit tricky. But I do think that there's there's probably some benefits to that whole thing. Uh, I've been around it a little bit. I've used it ice fishing as well, which is pretty interesting. I'm really anxious to see what Humminbird does with their, um, their new live... Uh, mega so we'll see what that's all about as well i believe their cone angles are going to be a little bit different though than than like what garmin's been producing garmin's got a narrow band and then a wide band in their transducer where i believe the bird one is going to be a cone shape like a traditional cone shape transducer so i don't know what that's going to do but should be interesting
1: yeah i believe garmin's is like 15 degrees i believe Lawrence's is 10 degrees so it's even narrower and then like hummingbird like you said I, I I think I read the same thing it's supposed to be a cone so really you'd be able to see more in that cone shooting out so it honestly would probably be better as far as if you were like the trawling thing like I was talking about that would be a way better for that because that would be looking at a a lot broader image than just a really tiny image that I could easily pass over muskie and never see issue is going to be is the quality
2: of the picture might not be as good but once you learn what you're looking at that's going to be the difference
1: yeah agreed
2: you know i think the beauty of the narrow cone angle is again the quality of picture but second of all pinpointing exactly where that fish is or that bait is or that stump or whatever so no it's interesting stuff it's really crazy technology that's for sure
1: yeah when i'm guiding a lot i'll have it turn like a 90 degrees from the boat on forward mode and that way, like at my client, which I'm sure you've ran into this too and inexperienced musky people, it's hard for them to imagine figurating every single cast. Well, anymore when I'm guiding, I'm generally not fishing. I, I'm staring at that screen and when they're casting, I'm watching their bait come in the last 10 feet. And if there's a fish behind it, I can tell them, Hey, make sure you do a good figure eight on this one. Or, if they're sitting there figurating for five minutes and I know there's not a fish there, I'm like, okay, hey, you need to make a new cast. Uh, you're wasting your time right there. I've done that a lot this spring, and its I've had a lot of people catch fish that they never would have seen because they came in really late, but they were going to eat, but they came in late and they never would have seen them. That's helped me a lot with it, too.
0: Yeah, I can
2: see that for sure.
0: All right, Chase, I want to thank you for coming out and giving us some information on southern fisheries. It's not something we talk about often on this podcast, but it's always uh, great to have guys on that can do that for us. If people are looking to make a trip south, how do they get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, so you can call me at uh, 304-816-6607, or you can message me on Facebook. I have uh, my personal page is Chase Gibson, my actual business page for my guide services, Gibson's Guide Service. Uh, You can just message me on there. Like I said, you can call or text
0: me. Either or. Perfect. And Chase, you know, a lot of us guys in the north were always jealous of you guys still fishing later. Are there specific times of the year that are better than others for, for us northern guys to come on down?
1: Yeah. December, which I'm not sure if you guys are still fishing, but December, I would say if you guys are iced up, generally we don't really see, we'll see ice Sometimes in late December and throughout January sporadically, but I'm generally fishing all the way up till like mid to late January, really early February. Last year I, I was fortunate enough. We only had like one week where the lake froze over and I couldn't get my boat on it. But we, I'm, I'm planning on guiding till booking trips to the late December. And then if it looks like I'm going to be able to guide, Farther into January, I'm going to start booking trips for January. But it, it's a great time down here in the wintertime. And there's not very many guys that have fished stonewall in the winter. And I started it two years ago and realized that I was missing something special. And it, it's a great time. Very, very fat fish. All those fish I'm talking about we have in the lake, they're all twice as the girth as they are all over the time of year. It's a very, very fun time. It's cold, but it's fun. Of course, pre-spawn—it's like, hey, run! We we'd have a good pre-spawn bite generally. April's very good. I'm not sure when your guys' season comes in, but April is extremely good on thermal. It's a very good time to get a really big, a big fish because they're just coming off spawn or just pulling up to spawn. Generally, it seems like the older, upper 40s, 50-inch fish are coming up shallow in mid to late April, and then early May through mid May is great too. And then June's, but really, our whole spring's good, but if you want a shot at a really big fish, your best chance is mid to late April, early May, and then June. I want to thank you for coming on, Chase. That's for sure.
2: I appreciate it. I'm sure we'll be talking soon. I know you're going to be up this direction, what, three, four weeks? So it's coming quick, man. It's, It's crazy how fast time's been flying this summer.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Thank you guys for having me.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Chase.
0: Yeah, thank you for coming out, Chase. We want to thank our listeners again for putting up with us for another episode. And we'll catch everybody again next week.